Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario, the Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo and I'm joined as always by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. What's up, man? Uh, what's up is that we're going to try to give listeners a more compelling listen than the conference finals have given them in terms of compelling watches. Because my God, we finally got, I guess, a, a close game until like late third quarter, but it came at the expense of just disgustingly brutal basketball. Yeah. Well, you know, the Mavs Warriors series, I feel like has had a bunch of pretty close, competitive, well-played games. It's just... Yeah. You know, until the last one, it was decidedly lopsided, you know, 3 nothing for the Warriors. But uh, at least the games themselves had been compelling, uh, to me at least. I mean, the yeah. the Celtics-Heath series has just been, I don't know, it's like hard to know even what to make of it because it's been so defined by extended stretches of like one team dominating the other, basically. And obviously all the injuries and just it's turned into kind of a war of attrition that has produced some pretty ugly basketball. But I feel like in the West, at least we're we're getting some good games. We'll dig in to the conference finals a little more in a few minutes. Before we do that, a couple minor news, well, I guess bigger than minor news, but a couple news tidbits I did want to touch on, get your thoughts on before we dig into the conference finals. First, Christian Winfield of the New York Daily News reported earlier this week that one uh, the Nets and Kevin Durant haven't had contact since the season ended. Two, the Nets aren't necessarily sold or maybe aren't sold at all on the idea of giving Kyrie Irving a max extension or giving him what he wants. First, I'd say, one, I think the KD thing needs some context because like my question would be, is this unusual for it? Like, does he usually keep contact with his teams immediately after a season? And like, Right. On the surface, it doesn't seem that weird to me when the season just kind of ended for them and we're not really in the off season yet where it's like maybe you're picking his brain about potential roster moves or things like that. Now, if it's July or late June and they want to talk to him about the roster going forward and he's MIA, I think that's a story. I'm not really that concerned from a Nets perspective of the fact that, you know, him and the front office aren't talking like within a few weeks of their season ending. You agree? Yeah, like have they tried to contact him <laughs> right. and he's leaving them on red? Like that's, there's a lot of different ways that you could spin that, I suppose, where maybe it's a big deal and maybe it's not. But I think the context is that the Nets are reportedly reluctant to give Kyrie a long-term extension, which is, or it wouldn't be an extension, I guess, but like assuming he opts out of the player option uh, on the last year of his deal, which I think we both expect that he's going to do they just be re-signing him and apparently are like reluctant to make a long-term commitment to him. So that, that is the context. And I do think provided that context, assuming that is actually real, then it is a cause for concern. Then it's not just 
oh, well, KD never talks to the front office <laughs> during the offseason, so I don't think we should read too much into that. Then it is, okay, the, this franchise might be at an inflection point here where they have to decide, is it worth essentially disillusioning our franchise player because the guy who is his best friend on the team and the guy that he specifically joined forces with to come here, they, they made that a reason he's to, here. They made that decision together. Are we really going to alienate Kevin Durant by not making this commitment to Kyrie Irving? And then on the other side of it, are we really going to make this commitment to Kyrie Irving knowing how flaky he is? The, the fact that even apart from the, the vaccine mandate, has not been a particularly available player for them since he signed there, has missed more games than he's played since he signed there. So I understand the reluctance, but I think they don't have a choice. I just don't think they have a choice. I don't think they can afford to be playing this game when so much is at stake for them. You know, when Kevin Durant's future with the franchise potentially is at stake. I just don't think it's worth it. And it wouldn't make me particularly comfortable to like give a five-year contract to Kyrie Irving. But unfortunately, I think this is the corner that they painted themselves into and kind of just have to see it through, I think. For the Scores YouTube page, I did an Unfiltered on the net maybe three weeks ago. The basis of that video for the Unfiltered series was that the nets are like getting dangerously close to, not to the quite the same depths, but they're getting dangerously close to going back towards that territory where they were before... Sean Marks came in and kind of started building them up where they were like in basically as desperate and as depressing uh, overall like roster building situation that any team in my recollection in the NBA has been. Now, again, I don't think they're going to get quite there because at that point they were like the worst team in the league without any draft capital, but it could get really dark, man. When you look at a lot of the draft capital they've given away, now they recouped some of it in, in getting rid of Harden and bringing Simmons in, but still draft capital isn't great. Obviously, the cap situation, like even without, even if they were to actually just let Kyrie walk and get nothing in return, they're still capped out next year. And, you know, they owe Ben Simmons $108 million over the next three years when I, neither one of us or anyone can say with any certainty that he'll even play 108 games over the next three years. And yeah. just overall, like this, the situation could get very dire. And so what I was getting at there is even within that video where I was saying the situation's dire and like Kate, uh, Kyrie being the flakiest star is part of that. I still said in that argument, however, they probably have to pay him because when you look at the way this is, like they don't have the cap space to replace him with anything near as good as him if he were to walk. It'd be hard for them to like find a sign and trade partner because I don't think too many other teams are lining up. But they also, yes, to your point, don't want to alienate KD since Kyrie's literally the reason he came to Brooklyn. So for all of these reasons, I was like, I, you know, personally, I've said before that as great as Kyrie Irving is, I would never want to be the NBA team who's depending on his availability to contend and definitely don't want to be the team, you know, giving him four or five years max type money or anything close to it. But for the Nets, very unique situation, they probably have to do it. And I, I thought they would eventually give him what he wanted. Now, the one interesting thing I'll say is the point I made about, you know, a sign and trade is probably not really that palatable to other teams because not a lot of other teams probably would want to give him a contract. I guess that does tie into the Nets' favor maybe as leverage because it's like, okay, if they don't give him what he wants, realistically, how many NBA teams are lining up to commit a lot of long-term money to Kyrie? And 
if they are, they're probably doing it with a lot of like incentive laden language in that contract when it comes to availability and games played, which is what I assume the Nets would do anyway. So I don't know. Well, I mean, I think, do, do you th- like, is Pat, are one of the teams, maybe like the smaller market teams that actually have cap space this summer, do, like does an Orlando, uh, San, maybe, well, maybe even San Antonio, Indiana, like any of those teams in these smaller markets that maybe just are desperate for a start, are they willing to take the gamble and be like, hey, we're Indiana, we're Orlando. Yeah, we'll pay Kyrie Irving $30 million a year for the next four years and take our chances with that. And conversely, would Kyrie be okay with going with a market like that? And then just what? I mean, in, in Kyrie fashion, he might just do that and then try to push his way out like five months from next. I don't know. But I could see it from both sides. But from the Nets' perspective, I 100% see why, even though they don't want to give him the money, they probably do in the end. But I can also see it from the other side where they do play hardball with him and say, all right, you want to go play in Orlando or, you know, and then try to force your way out and have to go through that again six months from now, go for it. Yeah. I mean, I've given up trying to parse out Kyrie's motivations or what he might do. Like that's just a fool's errand at this point. I have no idea what he's thinking or what he might be willing or not willing to do. So I don't know, maybe he would be willing to sign with one of those small market teams as to whether I think one of those teams would be willing to do this or should be willing to do this. I think for the most part, yeah, I think they should be because why not? Like if you're the Pacers, why not roll the dice and just see if, hey, maybe Kyrie's like happy to be in Indiana out of the spotlight, just focused on basketball, turns in one of his, you know, incandescent seasons and suddenly you're relevant again, where it's just like anything like that is not even on the horizon for a team in the Pacers situation where, you know, I guess they're ostensibly rebuilding, but where is that rebuild really going to lead? Do they actually have enough young promising talent on hand to sell that rebuild to the fan base? Like, yeah, I would totally do that if I was a team in that situation. I don't, are the Pacers one of those teams that would even have cap space to do it? I don't know. But I can also see, you know, a team like Orlando, for instance, in their situation where they are actually trying to build something from the ground up and maybe establish a culture and have a team that is growing and building together where everyone's kind of on the same timeline. They do have a lot of young, promising talent. I mean, I guess your mileage may vary on how promising you think that talent actually is, but between Wagner and Wendell Carter and Suggs and whatever they get with the number one overall draft pick this year, I think they can talk themselves into, no, this is a long-term building project that's going to bear fruit a couple years down the road. We're not going to take shortcuts. We're not going to short circuit this rebuild by taking a chance on Kyrie. That I would understand. But that's but a where team, I am. Yeah. But it but a team in like Indiana or San Antonio, I mean, he's, you know, maybe not the prototypical spur, but a team in like Indiana or San Antonio's position, I would be willing, I think, if I was in that position to to take a chance on him. So just to answer your question, the Pacers are in the group. It's San Antonio, Indiana, Detroit, Orlando, Portland as the teams that have like a pretty clear path Mm. to carving out the cap space necessary. So yeah, Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Uh, I think ultimately this does wind up with him re-signing in Brooklyn. But I think for the Nets to just sort of like assume that they have this leverage and to play hardball as a result of that feeling, I kind of feel like it would be a mistake. You know what I mean? Like, this is the bed that you've made. Like, you got to yeah. sleep in it. Like, you got to do what you can do to keep KD as happy, as engaged as possible. I know things haven't worked out the way that you hoped they would work out so far. 
But like I said, I think you have to see this through uh, wherever it leaves. And unfortunately, that's, I mean, that's the risk you take when you hitch your wagon to a star of Kyrie's nature. And, you know, that's, that's why they find themselves in this predicament right now. Yeah. And I think that's a good point too, to make, not just for the Nets, but for Kevin Durant himself, right? If, this is what happens when you hit your wagon to a star of Kyrie's nature because so many people have made the very like low-hanging fruit type of comments over the last few years of like well this Katie gets for leaving the Warriors like this is what happens when you leave the Warriors and I think it's less so just about he left the Warriors and more so he left the Warriors for Kyrie or he just he went to Kyrie and look obviously whatever they're friends off the court or they like like who am I to judge but I'm just saying that KD kind of made his own bed with this too, the same way we're talking about the Nets, by hitching his wagon to Kyrie, by Kyrie being the guy he wanted to play with and go start something with, because he went into that, like all of us, with the full knowledge of what Kyrie is and isn't on the court and off the court. So yeah, going a little more off the court now, but obviously still on court related, the Nuggets lose Tim Connolly from the front office, goes to Minnesota on a five-year, $40 million contract that reportedly, no one's confirming it, but it reportedly includes ownership equity. Mm. Now, the reason this is a story isn't so, well, I mean, for Minnesota it is too. Look, they they paid up to get the, uh, what's become a big name in uh, NBA front office circles and good for them if they think Tim Connolly is the guy to take them to that next step. There, There is something brewing there in Minnesota. You know, whether you want to look at like the way the crowd or the the fan base kind of rallied around that team in ways I really hadn't seen or heard them rally around a team in like 20 years since KG was there or close to 20 years with Anthony Edwards coming up, Carl Anthony Towns, you know, hopefully continuing to build towards superstar trajectory, like all of that. There, there is something budding there and to then go and, and show a willingness to pay as much as necessary to poach a good front office guy away from a divisional bow is, I don't think, any small feat. So all good for the Timberwolves. The Nuggets, obviously, uh, there's a lot of angst in that fan base right now because it was nine years ago now that they didn't pay up to keep Masai Ujiri. Now, I think that one might be a bit overblown because if you listen to the way Masai Ujiri has talked about Toronto, the fact that he, you know, he had already spent a pretty sizable chunk of his career in Toronto up to that point, I'm not sure how much of that was just money as opposed to like Toronto might have just been where he wanted to be in the end anyway. But nonetheless, they did get outbid from Masai Ujiri then. They seemingly didn't want to pay Tim Connolly now. I mean, you can look at it the other way and say, well, they've got a good track record of developing great executives because after Masai Ujiri left, Tim Connolly steps in and then Arturis Karsinovis was in that front office as well. And obviously he goes to Chicago. I don't really see that as like being cheap or anything because he got a bigger job in Chicago. So they, you know, they let him go do that. There's already talk at Calvin Booth, who's going to replace Tim Connolly, former NBA player. Calvin Booth is kind of the next big thing in an NBA executive. So from that perspective, they seem fine and they seem to know what they're doing in terms of who to promote and who to develop from that front office perspective. But there definitely should be concern among Nuggets fans with how tight the Cronky, Stan Cronky and the Cronky family, the people who own the Nuggets are when it comes to paying guys that look, don't count towards the cap, aren't going to contribute to luxury, like any of that. The whole small market thing should not be a concern here because as I've said before, in general with NBA, for the most part, these guys are billionaires, all of them, or close to it. And so the fact that, well, it's a small market. Yes. If you want to look at purely from a business standpoint of like, 
forget their wealth and go only by the operation of the business of their MBA team, which they want to be profitable, whatever. There's also revenue sharing. So that doesn't really make sense anyway. But the point of it is, whether they're in Denver or New York City, the Cronkies own Arsenal. They own the Rams. They own the, like they're multi-billionaires. So the fact that they're doing this in Denver, like really doesn't matter to me that they're in a smaller market. They can more than afford to leave no stone uncovered and spare no expense to put the best product possible on the floor and, you know, build teams that have the best possible chance to win championships. If your argument is that losing Connolly doesn't matter in that regard, then fine. But for me, it's more so just like what this continues to say about the Cronkies ownership of the Nuggets and that, yeah, they obviously things are going well for the most part on the court. They've got the two-time MVP once they give them what should be the biggest contract ever this summer, like the trajectory keeps going up. But I don't know, man, like if they're not willing to spend to keep the best front office guys when it doesn't even count against the cap, are they really going to spend into the luxury tax if they need to consistently to build and or keep a championship team? Like, no, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) No, they're not. And yeah, I think that sort of big picture problem is what I would be focusing on here. Like, Connolly has done a good job. I think, you know, the, the track record in terms of drafting, obviously, and just like moves, you know, on the margins to build that team up into the, I guess, call it a fringe contender, or if they were fully healthy, you know, full-blown contender, probably, that they've become. He deserves a lot of credit for that. He's been, you know, at the helm of that front office. But I also think, you know, like NBA front offices are super collaborative environments. And, you know, these teams have like huge scouting departments, analytics departments, like a lot of different people who are consulting and advising on personnel moves. And of course, there's one person who has final say-so who's making the decision at the end of the day. But I think to like take that body of work and assign all the credit or blame to one person is probably misguided. So we'll see what Tim Connolly does in Minnesota. Like I do think that's a good get for them and good for them for ponying up. Yep. to get like a really accomplished front office executive as they appear to be turning the corner. But I, I think your point about what does this say about Denver's ownership and their willingness to spend, you know, not just in terms of front office, but in terms of the roster, that's like the bigger concern than just, oh, Connolly's out the door. Like now we're doomed. You know, like they still have Nikola Jokic and Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray on the roster. And hopefully those guys are going to be back and healthy next year. And They'll be right back in the thick contending for a title. But yeah, it would concern me that there's a chance that they're going to squander Nikola Jokic's prime years because they aren't willing to spend it on the luxury tax. And I think maybe that's, you know, you could you could look at this as a red flag in that regard. Yeah, they're, they're not willing to spend with the big boys like the Minnesota Timberwolves. <laughs> All right, that's enough of that. Let's take a quick break and come back and talk conference finals. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, conference finals talk. I think we're going to spend the majority of this on Celtic seat rather than Matt. We'll talk Mavs Warriors too, but I think the majority of this convo is going to be Celtic seat. And my one question for you is, are the Eastern Conference finals done? 
I mean, literally, no, they're not. <laughs> like, what? You, you know what I mean. Is game six the end of the Eastern Conference playoffs? Probably, but who knows, man? Like, the series has been unpredictable in yeah. all kinds of different ways. Like, I think, I'll say this. If Jimmy Butler can't be more than what he has been the last two and a half games, then yeah, it's done. Yeah. If Jimmy Butler can get the juice back, then Miami has a shot to bring this back for a game seven. But I, I just think with him in that condition, it, you can take this back to game one. And we talked about this, about how, hey, Boston's coming in this series with a kind of a, a different defensive game plan than we might have expected where they're, I mean, they're switching a lot of the off ball stuff to take away a lot of Miami's pet actions, you know, the DHOs, the pin downs, all that stuff that's, you know, they're, they're flattening Miami a, uh, out a bit with the off ball switching, but like on ball, it's like drop, 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 drop. They're saying to Miami, like, literally give us any reason to stop doing this. Like, give us any reason to creep up a little bit higher to the level of the screen rather than doing everything we can to essentially take away Bam's rolling lanes by making sure the screen defender is always planted between him and the rim, making sure that the ball handler isn't going to get all the way to the rim when the defender is going over. A lot of the time having the defender go under so that the ball handler isn't even getting a runway to get into the middle of the floor. Give us any reason to stop doing this. Hit some jumpers so we have to change our approach. Yeah. Miami can't do it. Yeah. They're they're not hitting anything. And like that could just be variance and that could change in game six. They could suddenly get hot, start hitting threes, and it looks totally different and they bring it back to Miami. Is that likely to happen? I, I guess probably not. I, and even if they do, like they're, they're still going to have to worry about a, a lot of different things like one of which is just like bam whose assertiveness waxes and wanes like crazy had that massive game three but since then has been like so passive offensively and robert williams has a lot to do with that but i mean they're 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 defending the celtics really well they just can't score on them and the fact that you know kyle lowry can't hit a shot like there's something we talked about all year where any shots man well he i mean he's taking some it's like the same thing like he's he's coming off of these screens and the Celtics are in a drop and they're daring him to hit anything and he can't yeah. and Max Struess the last couple of games has like has he gone over I think Dude. he's so I don't think he's hit a shot the last two games has he game five Kyle Lowry and Max Struess went a combined 0 for 15 ESPN stats tweeted that that is the worst combined over from a starting backcourt in a playoff game in the 52 years that starters have been tracked they had the worst shooting game of a backcourt in any playoff game of the last 52 years. That's just game five. Remember that in game four, they combined to go one of 12. So over the yeah. last two games, Lowry and Struess, the starting backcourt, have combined to go one of 27. And so here's the thing. Like, we've been talking a lot this season about how we, we really liked the Lowry edition for Miami because he gave them this sort of pick-and-roll element and a, like a combination of shooting and playmaking and a bit of offensive dynamism that they've lacked in the past where like they'd become really reliant on this crazy motion offense with all the cuts and the handoffs that can work and can turn defenses inside out a lot of the time, but can also lead to a lot of possessions where if you run up against a defense like Boston that is either able to switch a lot of those actions or has like incredible screen navigators which that to me was a huge story of last night's game too with like, you know, between smart and Derek white, especially. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Derek white getting that post baby bump. 
like the suddenly okay if they're staying attached going over all these screens and not letting you get to you know those jumpers off a of dribble handoffs or they're switching on the pin down so you're not creating any daylight that way if you run up against that kind of defense then you need somebody like a you know peak Kyle Lowry who can just take the ball run a pick and roll and create something this version of Kyle Lowry very obviously is not doing that and it makes me sad to say this because I, you know, he's one of my favorite players of all time. But right now, he is not only not helping, but like he is an active detriment to the yeah. Heat when he is on the floor. So that guy that was supposed to give them like a bit of a safety net in that regard, when an opposing defense is able to snuff out all of the weak side activity and the motion and the handoffs and the cuts and all that, like they don't have a counter for it right now, especially because Jimmy Butler is not giving them that one-on-one scoring punch either. And again, like the heat are just going under screens against him, man. They're like, you want to pull up, go ahead. You want to try and rescreen and zigzag your way into the paint. Go ahead. Like they're, they're having Robert Williams or in some cases, Al Horford be the primary. And it's actually quite similar to what you may remember, like the Lakers in the finals a couple years ago, stuck Anthony Davis on him. Yeah. And did the same thing, had him go under screens to meet him on the other side. The Bucks did the exact same thing with Giannis in the playoffs last year. The obvious counter to that, if those guys are sort of sagging back and waiting for him at, in the paint, is, okay, why don't you like turn, turn Butler into a screener? You know, run some DHO with him as the trigger man, and then suddenly if he's like handing it off to Duncan Robinson, and Rob Williams is playing off him, or Anthony Davis, Giannis, if those guys are playing off of him, then you're still creating good shots, you know, or, or you're getting him like you're making the defense pay essentially for playing that coverage, but that only works if those other guys are hitting shots, which the heat are not doing right now. I mean, they shot what seven for 45 from three yeah. as a team last game. Um, and this is something I've been tracking because I, I noted it after game one, when I was like the drop didn't work for Boston in game one, but it was sensible because Miami came into this series as the worst pull-up jump shooting team in the entire postseason. They went 13 of 24 on pull-ups in game one. Boston was not deterred. They continued to drop. And since that game one, Miami is 36 for 119 on pull-up jumpers. That's 30%. And it's 24% on pull-up threes. So that gambit has very much paid off for Boston. And um, I just think at this point, like, especially with Hero out, I mean, that, that's, that's exactly that's what of, I was going to say. That, that's it's, kind of it's a killer for them the Celtics can especially rely on that type of coverage with hero. Well, I mean, they would do it even if he was still there, but you take one of their few actual pull-up threats out of the equation. And it's just even more sensible for the Celtics con- to continue playing it like this until Butler or anyone else in a heat jersey shows they are remotely capable of punishing them for it. Cause yeah. without hero, they do not seem, and even again, even if hero was in there, what that would give them what, like one and a half players who can do it. Like, it's just not enough. Especially I thought game five was interesting too, because as ugly as that game was, and as awful as the Celtics looked offensively for most of that game, turning the ball over, just looking really out of sorts, obviously heat defense is good too. Guess what? Between Jason Tatum, especially but Jalen Brown too, over the course of the game, like at some point, those guys just kind of caught fire. And yeah, it was it was literally like a seven minute stretch from late third quarter to mid fourth quarter that those guys actually hit their shots. But in a game that was that ugly and that low scoring and where the margin was that slim, guess what? Having your two shot makers make their shots for like a six or seven minute stretch was the difference. Meanwhile, yeah. on the other end, 
the one guy who I guess is capable of, of being a like the pull up, create for yourself, stick it between your eyes guy, Jimmy Butler was just not doing it and hasn't done it for a few games now in this series. Doesn't do it consistently. I know we, you know, as much as even I love him, have said he's the ultimate sixteen game player, and we both talked about how hilarious it is that he starts making his jumpers and his threes in the playoffs. Large sample size, taking everything in his career like into account, he's not a consistently effective jump shooter. So that's why I kind of made the joke about them having 1.5 threats like that because it's like hero and half of Butler. But when the Heat are doing that, or sorry, not doing that against that Boston defense, and you've got Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown on the other end in a series like this, it's like, yeah, that probably is going to be the difference. Plus, Al Horford might have been the best overall player on the court last night, like continues to just turn back the clock. Derek White was great from just all these things going for them. As, as, as much as both teams contributed to how ugly this game was last night and how ugly this series has been, frankly, at the end of the day, the Celtics have a couple shot makers who, at the very least, have done it enough in this series. And the yeah. Heat, if they have any shot makers left, haven't. Well, I mean, it's just, I don't think Butler's healthy. Like, I don't see yeah. any other explanation for it. And it's like you watched that game last night, and the Heat are finally like they mothballed Dwayne Dedman. And they're, when, when Bam's off the floor, they're going five out with PJ at the five. The Celtics have Al Horford guarding Butler in single coverage, right? And you got a spaced floor, like you're five out with Tucker at the five. And Butler is still not looking to attack Horford off of the bounce, right? Like, I just don't think that he has, I don't think he has it in him physically right now to do that. And that's why I think, yeah, this series is almost certainly done because it's hard to see him with only one day off in between games, getting back to a point where suddenly he's going to have the verve back that he had in games one and two of this series. Like, I think that's, that's just really hard to see. And especially with there not really being anyone who can pick up the slack, like bam, again, he had that huge game three, but last night it's like the, literally the heat crowd was yelling for him to shoot Dude, the ball when he that, was catching it. Yeah. That and, like audible restlessness literally from the jump, the first time bam touched the ball. I can't remember how the mismatch worked. He might've had Jalen Brown. Anyway, literally the very second he caught the ball in a mismatch situation, you could hear the crowd like trying to either encourage him to shoot or just getting restless or whatever. Like when it's like that, you know, a player is going through it. And even when he had a mismatch, he barely looked at the rim. Yeah, he he started to get more assertive in what was basically garbage time down the stretch when the Celtics were already up 20. So that was kind of frustrating. And I, I mean, I don't know. It's like he showed in that game three. He was capable of doing it. And it's not like Boston, like they've tweaked their defense a little bit to take away his short rolls even more. But in that game, it's not like, it's not like the Celtics were putting two on the ball and he was rolling to the rim like he did that maybe a couple of times um and it's not like they were switching and he was taking advantage of the back end of switches again he maybe did that once or twice in that game it was really just him attacking in early offense like sprinting down the floor and getting a quick seal dribbling himself into deep post-ups taking advantage when he got cross matches in transition and also just taking and making a bunch of mid-range jumpers whether that was out of the short roll or whether it was on face-ups and you know he's not going to shoot like that every game he's not going to score like that every game but i think the assertiveness is what you want to see especially with butler clearly not able to shoulder the load offensively but i think we've seen like that is more the exception than the rule when it comes to bam uh at least in this postseason and so expecting that to to happen in this must win game six i think is maybe a little bit far-fetched but 
I, I just like, yes, there's been a lot of not great offensive process for Miami and they're banged up and that's contributing to it. But I do think the Celtics defense just deserves so much credit because they've been really intentional about this. And I think, you know, to go back to the pull-up shooting thing, again, what like they're doing a good job of taking away the catch and shoot threes. Like they're doing that by limiting penetration so that like, you know, the driving kick isn't really there for Miami, but they're also doing it by being really smart about like they're guarding those pin downs. Somebody is jumping out, whether it's a switch, if it's a switch, like that switch defender is jumping out to take that catch away or they're putting two on the ball and making sure like that look isn't there or they're just doing a really incredible job of staying attached. Like they are making a point of if you're going to beat us, you are going to have to beat us off of the bounce. And their bet is that Miami is not going to be able to do that. And it's looking like a pretty good bet right now. And then, you know, at the other end of the floor, it's like, to your point, Miami's defense has also been really, really good. But Boston has this fail safe where they have two pretty incredible shot makers. uh, And and in Tatum's case, like shot creator. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the difference. Um, That's one difference. I mean, the other difference is Miami actually does have these weak spots that you can pick and prod at, you know, where they needed a dust off Duncan Robinson in the last game because they just needed somebody who could shoot the ball. But then like, then that's a spot that Boston can attack and like Robinson's hedging and recovering every time they try to draw him into action that works sometimes. And like Miami can survive that, but it's also a way for Boston to create advantages, which Miami just doesn't have. And there was like, I thought a really funny stretch in that game in like the the second quarter where it must have been like 12 possessions in a row where Derek White was a screener in pick and roll. And I liked the adjustment to have him roll instead of pop because he's not hitting his jumpers and Miami's obviously not respecting him as a jump shooter. So they know that Miami is going to put two on the ball because they don't want to switch. I mean, this happened basically because Miami is consistently putting its weakest defender on Derek White, which makes him like really uh, suddenly central to Boston's offense. They know Miami is going to put two on the ball because they don't want to switch that defender, whether it's Struess or Gabe Vincent or Duncan Robinson. They don't want to switch that defender onto Tatum. That gives White a chance to roll into space. And it worked. He, he scored a couple of buckets as the roll man. Like he made a kick out on a short roll, like hit a floater. He was He was really good. Yeah, I was going to say too that I love the decision making on the role from him too. And I think that's what it's like a unique thing to have a guard essentially as the role man. And I love when you see it happen because defenses aren't used to and aren't really equipped to deal necessarily with role men with the decision making and playmaking ability of a guy like Derek White. Now, obviously, a guy like Derek White can't always be effective as the role man. Again, they're, they're putting their worst defender on him, so it makes more sense. But when it does make sense, I always love watching it because, you know, Draymond's the kind of guy that does it, obviously, but he, he's a big man, and it's a little more traditional from a positional standpoint. Mm-hmm. When a guy like Derek White does it or these small guards do it because of the fact that the defense is dictating they do that, I just love watching it because, yeah, I thought there were so many times where Derek White just made these great decisions as the roller that you just don't usually see because the roller is usually a big man who isn't Draymond Green. So I, I thought that was interesting. There was one too. It was this was more of a fast break thing, but there was a, there was a point early in the game where Derek White caught the ball. I, I think it was a three on one or a three on two. But the point is he caught the ball pretty close to under the rim. But Lowry was setting up to take the charge. It was like a trap set up that if Derek White comes down and even takes half a step, continuing to go to the rim, yeah, that's a charge. And instead, 
within half a second of him catching, it was basically a touch pass to whoever the, the, the trailer coming down the court was. And it's an uncontested layup. And again, that was in a fast break situation, not on the roll, but it goes to what I'm talking about where like, you know, if that's a big man or just someone who's not used to having the ball in his hands, they're probably not making that split second decision. Derek White can because he is a guard with guard skills. And so you put that in a roller situation and you can kind of see how things open up, especially when the guy defending him is probably not a good defender. Yeah. Kudos to the Celtics defense. Kudos to Rob Williams, who's been like, he's just everywhere, man. Like there One play where he was literally right under the rim. Like he had rotated under the rim to deter a drive. I think it was from Duncan Robinson of all people who was actually like attacking a lot of closeouts and putting the ball on the floor a lot more than I'm used to seeing in that last game. So um, he, he was attacking closeout. Robert Williams slides over to deter him at the rim. And the kickout goes to Rob Williams' guy in the corner. I think it was Gabe Vincent. And Rob Williams recovers to block that three-pointer, which was I, like my I, my jaw was on the floor. That was one of two three-pointers that he blocked in the game, like obviously doing everything else in terms of like shutting down the rim. And I just think Miami is super spooked of him right now. But um, especially given like the knee injury that he's recovering from, his ability to just be in multiple places at once and to still have that like explosive leaping ability and the second jump ability, he was incredible. I think, you know, the one area that maybe you could nitpick is defensive rebounding because this was a huge offensive rebounding game for Miami. That's kind of the thing. That's why you could expect them to shoot the ball better. Yeah. But also, are they going to have the possession advantage that they had in this game? Because I think they were like plus 16 in shooting possessions in this game yeah. between the turnovers and the offensive rebounds, and they're still lost by double digits. So that's why I just don't know that it bodes particularly well for them yeah. in game six. Like, uh, And again, that does go back to the jump shooting, because you may remember that one possession where they got like three offensive rebounds in one possession, but missed like four three-pointers in a row, and two Dude, of them didn't even hit the rim. Both of those were from Victor Oladipo. He hit backboard, like backboard air balls on the same possession on wide open threes. Don't know if I've ever seen that happen. All right, here's an interesting question before we shift over to Dallas uh, Golden State because we talked about quite a few different Celtics. I mentioned, you know, Horford might have been the best overall player in that game. We talked about the shot making of Tatum and Brown. Mm. You talk about Robert Williams' phenomenal defensive impact, yada, yada, yada. This is the first year where there are going to be conference finals MVPs with the the new Magic Johnson uh, Award in the West and the Larry Bird Award in the East. So if this, I know, it, obviously we have one to two games left, but say if this had been a best of five and now the Celtics had one in five, who would, if you had a vote, have gotten your Eastern Conference final MVP vote based on what we've seen so far? Tatum. Same. Same. And I think even though he struggled a lot with his individual offense in that last game, and maybe even specifically because he struggled with his individual offense in that game, it, it actually was crystallized even more. Like I thought that was a really good showcase for the playmaking strides mm -hmm. that he has made. And yeah, there are still times when like his big has a mismatch underneath that he is not looking for. And like there are passes that he doesn't see, but I think for the most part, he made really good decisions when he was getting double teamed and snapped off some pretty incredible skip passes to put the heat in rotation or to tilt the balance of the floor when they were overloading the strong side. Like it was a good playmaking game from him. I think he wound up with nine assists, but I think even more than that, like there were just, there were plays where he didn't get credited with an assist where a lot happened for Boston offensively because he was able to swing the ball to the other side of the floor and put 
whether it was putting another player in position to score or just put another like player in position to like attack and create a look for somebody else somewhere down the chain, his ability to like shift the floor with his passing, I thought was really huge. And on top of that, like it's not easy sometimes like when you're getting blitz or like when the opposing team is putting two on the ball, whether it's turning the corner or just like finding the angle to make the pocket pass to the guy who's rolling, like that's not always easy to do. And it's maybe easier for a guy like Tatum who's six foot eight and can see over top. But like, I just think he deserves a lot of credit for making the right decision and making good passes out of those scenarios that really helped Boston's offense get out of the mud. 100%. And in a game and in a series that has been this much of an offensive slog fest, uh, in a game and in a series where no high volume player on either team has been anything close to efficient. Coming up with 22 points, nine assists, and multiple offensive rebounds in what for the longest time was like the only close game of the series is actually huge offensively, even when you do it inefficiently. So um, credit to Tatum. I agree with that. He would be my through five games, East Finals MVP. All right, let's flip over to the West Finals. Dallas stays alive with a game four win. Golden State can, and I think will close it out with the game five the night that we are recording this Thursday back in the Bay Area. I have a lot less to say about this series that we haven't already said before in comparison to Boston-Miami. My question for you, and I think I know the answer because we've talked about this a bit off air, is do you have anything to say and or any observations to share from this series other than that it just continues to come down to Dallas's shooting variance, as we've said before? I actually do. Uh, I think the shooting is huge. So you lied to me via text. All right. Okay, well... Yeah, I mean, I was exaggerating a little bit and saying like, yeah, my big takeaway from this is, oh, Dallas hits their shots and suddenly they look really good. No, which is true. I'd I'd like to hear your observations. Well, I just, I do feel like for a lot of this series, Dallas has been creating pretty good three-point looks and like their offensive process has been more or less sound and they just haven't been knocking down shots. And that affects them in a few ways, like obviously the, the shooting itself, but also just being able to open up the floor so that they can get to the rim. Like they just haven't gotten to the rim at all this entire series until game four. Now, was it just the fact that they were hitting their threes that opened up the floor and allowed them to get to the rim? I don't think it actually was just that. I think they were more decisive about attacking. I think the Warriors defense was not quite as locked in, frankly. Yeah, I was going to say my biggest takeaway was human nature kicked in for the Warriors. And I think they knew they had some wiggle room to play with. Yeah, their rotations just weren't quite as tight. And I think also like that sort of first wave of defense where it's like the guys pinching in from the wings or the guy helping at the nail, that just wasn't as strong. So even when like the last line of defense was there, it's more so just like forcing a kick out once the guy's already gotten two feet in the paint where that wasn't happening nearly as often in the previous three games. Like this game, the drive and kick game was really there for Dallas, they were getting shots at the rim and they were also just generating really good stuff out of penetration. And especially, I think the Warriors zone, which had been really effective in the first three games, I felt like Dallas just tore that zone to shreds for, you know, basically until the fourth quarter where, you know, a lot of the time it was like pretty simple stuff. Like they would run a, a high pick and roll. If it was Brunson running it, they would have Luca on the wing one pass away. And if Luca was running it, they'd have Brunson on the wing one pass away. And then they're just like running a pick and roll toward that side of the floor and forcing that defender to make a decision about whether they're going to help and force the kick out or whether they're going to like allow Luca to stroll into the middle. And 
regardless of which decision they made. Like if they forced the kick out, then Brunson was able to go to work. And if they didn't, then they're like, you know, Luca's obviously drawing help in the middle and they're getting cuts through that zone and they're getting to the rim, which they hadn't been able to penetrate it to nearly the same extent in previous games. So it was a little bit of the Warriors let up on defense and the Mavs, I thought, found some good stuff offensively that they hadn't been doing in games past. Little stuff too with Luca, like this is something, you know, I don't think I'm alone in this, but you really want to see him just moving more without the basketball, like yeah. giving it up to get it back. And there was one play in the first, I don't know, first quarter or second quarter that I I just spotlighted. Like I, I, I wrote it down and I was like, this is something I want to see more of where they ran the pick and roll at Steph, which they've just done, you know, time and again in this series. And Steph shows and recovers like he does every single time they put him in action. And this time, like, okay, so Steph's showing and recovering essentially to buy, uh, it was actually Looney. And this is another interesting thing which, which we can talk about where what the Mavs have started to do is they'll get the switch. They'll get Looney switched on to Luka because the Warriors are willing to give that switch, which is interesting. They're not willing to give the switch with Poole or a Steph, but they're willing to give it with Looney. So the Mavs are exploiting that by basically getting Looney switched onto Luka and then running the pick and roll with Steph guarding the screener. So that's what they did on this possession. And Steph shows, tries to recover. That buys Looney time to get back onto Luka. But Luka, instead of like waiting for that recovery to happen, kicks it to the top of the floor and immediately cuts into the middle while Looney is like still trying to recover out to him, essentially. Just like a little give and go. And now Looney's out on the perimeter and there's no real rim protection behind him and Luca's able to score at the rim. Like, that's just smart basketball and that's totally something the Mavs could do more of. It's just about having the willingness and the intentionality to do it. So um, I think for one thing, like that that counter, like having, like creating the, the switch, you know, the, the Looney switch before running action at Steph, I think that's a good thought because then... If you do manage to penetrate out of that, whether it's just, you know, with the give and go or just by turning the corner, then suddenly, you know, one of the Warriors' best rim protectors is not near the rim. They did that a bit in the Phoenix series too with Aiden, but I feel like they've done it more lately with Looney. Them doing that also targets Steph, right? And that's something we talked about after game one where I thought they could target him more, probably too little too late. And and also not even just too little too late. I mean, at the end of the day, they're not as good as the Warriors. So, mm. um, you know, they're, they're trying to find recipes for success. They found it enough in game four. In terms of the shooting variance that I wanted to point out is like they actually shot the, the game they shot the ball best in this series percentage-wise was actually game two. That's the game they blew that big lead. So shooting variance, obviously a big part of it, but not the be-all end-all in this series. Last question for you is, and I know, look, we're going to have plenty of time to preview the finals next week and then to you know react as games happen but last week when uh, I asked you the question of like after a game each in the conference finals if you rank the four teams in terms of championship likeliness you had Boston one Golden State two I had Golden State one Boston two have you seen anything in the last week as these series have developed to change your mind in that regard or is that still how you would kind of see it right now before really digging into it and breaking down and previewing the series where you would still have Boston one golden state two in terms of championship probably. Uh, no. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't changed my mind. I think, yeah. I think Boston actually pretty solidly, I would put number one. And I think it's as much a matchup thing as anything where, you know, it's not the exact same as Miami. Like there's obviously more shot creation and shot making with golden state, 
but they do run a lot of the same stuff in terms of like the high post split action, like the dribble handoff game. Like a lot of that is similar. A lot of the and, off ball deception stuff and like yeah, like, I mean Boston's ability, like the, their offense. their switch ability, but also just their ability to mix coverages and to play this sort of with this defensive variety like that I feel like has really been the key for them where you know not that they've just been this switch everything defense and that's like all they've done all season like that's been a huge part of it but I do think they have amped up the variety in that series against Miami and I just think they're really well equipped to defend that Warriors offense and better equipped to defend it I think than the Warriors are to defend them but um the Warriors are also a really good defensive team. Like they, they were second in the league in defensive rating during the regular season. Boston was number one. So if that is the matchup, be a, a meeting of the two best defenses in the league, and it would pretty similar, I think, to the Boston Miami series. It's just like, okay, which of these teams can actually crack the other's airtight defense? And I would, you know, despite feeling like Golden State is a, a considerably better offensive team than this version of Miami is, I would still give the edge to Boston there. Yeah, I think that series could be really, really, really fantastic basketball. So uh, by the time we talk again next week, the matchup might be set or should be set actually because, yeah, it will be set because the the longest the conference finals can go till is Monday night anyway. And I think our first episode of next week will be Tuesday when we will preview the finals. And then we can probably pod again Friday morning to break down what happened in game one of the finals. Until then, we'll find you got anything else to say? Should I get into some fan shoutouts? Get into some fan shoutouts, man. All right. Fan shoutout this week goes to Noah McAleer in Berlin, Maryland, who reached out via Instagram DMs a few weeks ago. Uh, he's actually a relatively newer listener because he says he's been listening since January, but that he's always used the Score app as his go-to sports app. Good job, Noah. And uh, he called us the best NBA pod out there. I'd say we agree, or at least I'd say I agree. But let's get more on board with that line of thinking, Noah. So tell your friends. Um, also, I did want to point out last week's fan shout out. I talked about how uh, they had given us the ranking of the greatest pound the rock sound bites. So Alexander Webby, who we've actually shouted out before as a longtime listener and, and supporter of the show, DM'd me as well to say that he heard that fan shout out and, and listened to that segment, but that he wanted to add that the undisputed best soundbite in pound the rock history was when I went on the Paul George rant and called him the tin man himself. And then within 10 days I had to recant because he came alive and burying the Mavericks. And I would have to agree with Alexander, both in terms of the quality of the original soundbite and my backtracking. Those were good times. Usual call out for all of our listeners. We want to shout you out and thank you for supporting the show and letting us do what we do. So whether this is your first time or 244th time listening to pound the rock, hit us up. On Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfond at thescore.com. Joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram, joe underscore 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 cash. And let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been a listener, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't. Favorite moments, as some people recently have done. Whatever the case may be, just reach out. We want to hear from you and we want to shout you out. So do that and we will give you the love you guys deserve. Until one of those future shout outs in one of those future episodes. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.